Pleasure to be here, as always, I should say. Um, for those who are logging in live and also for those who will be um, listening and viewing this at a later stage, I have taken on board today a what I think is a quite a, how shall I put this, um, I'm ambitious today, let me put it that way. I've taken on the great ambition to actually explain what is happening in the share market today. And, and while doing so, I hope I create a, um, a broadcast that will have some longevity to it. And I, I would suggest just uh, out, of, out, of, out of hand that um, we all return in 12 months in, or in, in maybe three to five years and we can judge how I'm doing today. Um, just telling everyone that uh, there is obviously, and everyone would have picked up on this one, there was, a, there was a, a sharp debate going on in the share market. It's been going on for the past, let's call it three to five years already. And in, in, in terms, the lingo that's being used by professional fund managers, it becomes value versus growth. Um, for most investors, however, who are not necessarily part of the fund management industry, and that I'm assuming includes everyone who's uh, listening and viewing this broadcast, including myself, I like to talk about winners and losers. And I think that's a much more accurate uh, description of what's happening in the share market. And the share market is very much divided, polarized, bifurcated. Uh, not, doesn't, doesn't matter which verb essentially you're using, but there's a very sharp division between losers and winners in the share market. And everyone would have noticed that one in their portfolios. Now, before I continue, we all know that um, I'm, I'm willing to share my insights, my research and my analysis in this broadcast, but there's nothing I say that can, can could possibly be constructed as financial advice, not even if you tried very, very hard. Um, to go back, uh, to understand what is happening today in the share market, I think we should go back about 100 years to the 1920s. And I'm really, really surprised that not many more experts and commentators have done this already. For those who are familiar with my work a little bit, um, it's, it's about four or five years ago I published a book uh, it's called Change, Investing in a Low-Growth World. And in that book already, I made that comparison between what's going to happen in the 2020s and what was happening in the 1920s, 100 years earlier. Now, I would, in, I would invite everyone who is interested in, in that period to simply open up a browser on your, on your, on your, on your PC or laptop and just type in uh, major inventions from the 1920s or something along those lines. And there's plenty of material out there um, to investigate, to research and to look back upon. But in general terms, the 1920s were probably uh, the peak so far in human history of in terms of new inventions and innovations uh, reaching society and completely changing society. So society was in, in, a, in, a, in a very brief time span, uh, sincerely transformed. And it's not too difficult today to see why that is. We, we literally moved from a time 
when most of the work was done by horses and other animals and in the household was all manual and all of a sudden we we managed to get electricity in the, in the u.s households uh, of course at the beginning uh, in the houses that were um, uh, well off and lit and after that it sort of like trickled down into the rest of society but what it did was absolutely enormous significant substantial whatever you want to you want to call it i don't think any of us today can truly understand how for example the lives of households changed because now all of a sudden you had apparatuses like a like a, a hair dryer a, a washing machine a vacuum cleaner um, that made life so different and so much easier for the average household in the us why am I going back that far is because in the share market that at that time also created a very strong feeling that the future all of a sudden was full of promise and so different from the past. And so what we got in the share market is in today's terms, a very sharp division between value and growth. In other words, between winners and losers. And at that time, the losers were certain utility companies and railroad companies because investors saw, for example, what the light bulb, what the telephone, what the radio and what the, the, the car industry, which was emerging back then, what they, what they, how they would change society. And in today's share markets, we essentially have the same thing happening. Now, when I did write my book a few years ago, I was predicting that the 2020s would be, would be as important as the 1920s. And today, I have to say, I actually was too benign in my prediction. I actually think we are now at the forefront of probably the, the most innovative and tumultuous time that society has ever known. And we have hardly seen the tip of the iceberg so far. I have put a few uh, characteristics here on this slide. You can see that our transport, our means of transport will considerably and irrevocably change. Uh, we, the energy sector is going to change. Everything we have in the house that's electrical will, uh, will be communicated with each other. It will talk to us and talk to each other and, and, and do actions that we now have to do manually. We, Everyone who's interested in biotechnology already probably has picked up that we are growing organs in the laboratory now. What people may not have picked up on that is that in the slipstream of that, some of the, there's now 10 companies around the world that have taken that technology and are moving into the food industry, which means that in a few years time, we, we will be able to buy meat in the supermarket that is grown in a lab so they will be able to market it in in the sense of no animals have been hurt by producing this material and that is absolutely luck that, that science fiction coming to us in at a very very rapid pace now again in the share market we see because all of this is happening and this will reform and transition society as we know it and it's already happening and it's actually coming a little bit quicker than I thought it would. But I think on the experience from history, we've seen the 1990s when the internet came up, we've seen the 80s when the, when the personal computer 
came up. We go back to the, to the 1920s, where so many innovations were coming to society. I think it shouldn't surprise anyone today that because of all these innovations and technologies coming up, that again, investors are making a sharp division between companies that are part of this revolution and companies that, will, that are at risk of being left behind. And I think in the debate between value versus growth, I think the main question that investors should not be asking themselves is, are some of these companies too lowly valued in the share market? I think the main question that should be front and center of investors today should be, how are some of these companies going to transition in the next three to five years? And equally important, are they still going to be around in seven or 10 years time? Because history shows those questions will become all important. And as it always goes, before you know it, the question is very, very much uh, very pertinent, uh, present in the share market. A quick step back to the 1920s again. One of the reasons why investors get so excited when those new technologies hit the market and, and they, can, they can see that they will be adopted by, by society is there is this long, uh, runway of growth ahead of them. I've here picked a few of those innovations from last century, and you can you can see that they basically many of them are already there at the early 1900s. But it takes it takes an incubation time into the 1920s, when more and more U.S. households are getting these products in house, and even after that, it still takes about half a century before there's a natural saturation amongst uh, U.S. households for those products. And that's just the U.S. Obviously, beyond the U.S., you had Europe. And then beyond Europe, you had the emerging market. So the potential, the potential road ahead of growth is absolutely significant. And this is why, of course, investors get, get really excited about these new technologies. Of course, we all know that it's not that easy. When, when, it, when it was certain that the cars would, would become widely available, we had an explosion in car manufacturers. And we know now in hindsight that it's not necessarily the one who gets, gets first to market that is the one that will be successful and survive. As a matter of fact, the car manufacturers um, are shrinking and have been shrinking over, over the past decades. And the only reason why we get new entrants in that market right now is because, of course, we have the electrical vehicles and not necessarily the combustion engine. Now, equally important about the 1920s is that we, we went through a period when interest rates had become very low. And at first, bond yields would invert and would be very flat as a curve. That is also similar to what we are experiencing today. So I'd be very careful um, if, I, if I were myself and, and in your shoes, to, to simply take guidance from people who continue telling us that the bond market must be in a bubble, because the 1920s suggested that's not necessarily the case. There is a direct link here when society goes through such turmoil because of, because of the innovations and the technologies that are coming into society. Another thing, another myth I like to, um, I'd like to touch upon here very quickly as well, is I've lined up here an overview of which stocks were very popular in that period. 
And you can tell quickly that share prices between 1923 and 1929 um, multiplied like very quickly. So there is easily an observation to make and, and, and a suggestion to be made that those share prices were overly overvalued and, and, and etc. But unfortunately um, I didn't I didn't have it available at the time when I put together this presentation but there is a book out there which is called uh, Uncommon Sense um, and if in that book you will find that the PE ratios of these stocks here we're actually not as high as we as we tend to be as people tend to be, make us believe. PE ratios in those days were in the 20s, in the 30s, and in the 40s, which is essentially where PE ratios are today in the share market. Now, are we by definition then at the forefront of a new bear, new gigantic bear market, a la 1930s? I don't think so. I think what we all should bear in mind is that. Why the share market corrected uh, so strongly in the 1930s is because the economic picture changed. Federal Reserve governments made mistakes and, and a lot of banks went bankrupt subsequently and we got a very deep recession. This is why the share market corrected by 89% in the subsequent years. It's not because, as we are, as we are told, to, uh, told to believe, is that it's because of, of, of excessive valuations. Now I have put a very simplistic overview together here. Um, and it is because of all the uh, innovations and, and disruption that's happening in society. The share market has made a very sharp division between winners and losers. And a quick view here will, will show you that the winners over the past few years have been healthcare stocks, infrastructure stocks, technology, uh, quality industrials and infrastructure, and, and, and obviously a few other ones. Um, there is overlap. It's not necessarily uh, that if you're in healthcare, that you can't be a quality industrial, for example. You probably are if you're in Australia. Um, but on the loser side, we have very well-defined companies and sectors that have absolutely not done much over, over, over on a five to six year uh, horizon. And uh, occasionally there's a rally in bricks and mortar retailers, for example, but so far they always tend to peter out. And that's not even mentioning the retail property landlords, aged care providers, asset managers. Think, for example, at the likes of uh, uh, platinum asset management, how that share price, uh, share price is, is, is faring in the share market. And we also have in the industrial sector, capital heavy business models. And the reason here is that if you are operating a business that requires a lot of capital just to stay in business or to maintain your operations, from the moment that you are being disrupted by these capital light online business models, more often than not, you are in trouble. Now, coming back to the August reporting season, I had announced in well ahead of this presentation that I would I would uh, definitely incorporate the August reporting season here. The irony of the August reporting season is that it, out of all the reporting seasons I have covered, and Evelina has covered over the past few years, I've seldom seen a reporting season where the division between the two camps in the share market was as sharp as it, as it was uh, became uh, visible in in August. And it was clear that you have, yes, you have some popular growth stocks and some of them um, couldn't quite live up to expectations in, in the reporting season. I'm thinking, for example, on A2 Milk, um, maybe near map uh, suits that, that or fits into that model as well. But on average, 
you will you will have, you would have find found that in most reporting season in past years, including in August, the popular growth stocks um, they all performed quite well and they managed expectations very very well and they achieved what they wanted to achieve. So share prices didn't really sell off in August. On the other hand, those laggards, the loser stocks in in the in the in the share market, they couldn't they couldn't do much. And uh, there were plenty of profit warnings ahead of the season, and even during the season, companies were simply unable to uh, beat expectations, which is not that good given that expectations already were that low. Now, underneath everything I've just told you, I discovered that there's a there's a lot more going on on the dividend front than initially meets the eye, and I think that should be the conclusion that most investors really take on board. If you scrap away the one-offs and the specials we had on, on, on one end, and you look at the underlying trend in Australia, then it's clear, and it should be clear to everyone, that dividends are coming under pressure and they will come under pressure even more in the year ahead. So be careful if you have dividend stocks in your portfolio that might look a little bit on the weak side because you may not get the dividends in the form that you're hoping for. I've put a few numbers together. Out of the ASX 200 companies that reported in August, which is not all of them, 23 companies reduced or scrapped their dividends in August, which is quite a high number if you consider that only about 180 uh, members of the ASX 200 pay out a dividend and they don't all report in August. Now, on my projections, we, that number might uh, actually double over the next six months, definitely over the next 12. So be careful by simply buying stocks because they apparently, in particular if you look backwards, have a high yield. This slide sort of is a different form of showing you what uh, what's happening in Australia at the moment. The darker blue line is actually what, what is happening to company margins. The lighter blue line is what analysts had expected. So we were expecting pressure on the margins in Australia. It just turns out that practice reality is much more worse than we were expecting. And that, of course, is the main reason why we have now pressure on, on dividends as well. I mean, there's only so much you can pay out to shareholders if your margins come under such pressure. Now, I've put together, I put a few names together here, and these are companies that I believe investors should should take into account that uh, you may not get the dividends you got last year or the year before. And some of those companies shouldn't be shouldn't be a, 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 a surprise. Some of those companies have already issued profit warnings by now. I'm thinking of uh, Eclipse Group and uh, G8 Education, Grain Corp, Internet Pivots, uh, uh, there was um, uh, Costa Group, Adelaide Brighton, AMP, but there's also a few interesting companies in here. There's three banks in there, apart from CYBG, Lord Clydesdale, there's Bank of Queensland and there's Westpac. On the right-hand side, there's also Spark Infrastructure. So it shows you that it's not just the cyclical industrials, there are other categories of stocks also in here and what also is remarkable there's also a number of resources stocks in there. And I do believe that investors should be prepared 
that uh, resources stocks, including uh, the Fortescues, the BHPs, the Rios, they will now gradually, you would hope gradually, could be faster than that, they, they will start paying out less to shareholders than they have in the past three years. And I mean, that's the normal uh, way that the cycle goes. Um, usually, and I've, I've put this funny, funny little uh, picture here, but usually I always tell investors, listen, the share market is about growth. And um, no matter what the problem is, low, low yields, slowing, slowing cycles, GDP growth, Trump tweets, government inaction, it doesn't matter. As long as your company is able to grow, it will grow out of those problems. Now, unfortunately, this is where things now in 2019 gets a little bit, get a little bit more complicated. And the reason for that is the bond market. Now, I've managed to find here a, a um, what I think is, is quite an original uh, chart. Uh, it's, it's about UK rates, and apparently the Bank of England has found a way to go back to 3000 before crisis, before Christ, I should say, not before crisis, but before Christ. Um, and that's about 5000 years in the past. Um, I have no idea how they did this. But anyway, what I found interesting to know is that um, in 3000 before Christ, if you want to borrow money from someone, it'll, it would cost you 20%. And thousands of years later, it would cost you till, still 10 or 12%. So th those are obviously levels of interest rates that we are not going to see anytime now. And we haven't seen them for a while either. Quick view also looks at the, that the, the yield in the 1930s in the UK briefly also touched 0%, and that's exactly where we are today. Now, needless to say, we haven't spoken a lot about the bond market in, 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 since the 80s, uh, because back then bond market was, was very, offered very high yield because we had, we had an inflation problem. And since that time, bond deals have essentially just fallen, 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 fallen. That's a positive for the share market. But we are now going through a period when the bond market is increasingly influencing what is happening elsewhere, including in the share market. And so investors should now, if they haven't already, start paying attention and definitely take into account that the bond market can wreak havoc on their portfolios, and they probably will as well. Now, one of the positive elements about the bond market, and one thing that, that is not very widely publicized on my observation is that this particular chart shows shows you the the relative performance of REITs real estate investment trust in the Australian share market and the equity market in general now I'm certain that most investors will agree with me that it was only five six seven years ago that REITs were simply regarded as a relatively boring provider of, of steady yield in the share market. And it was actually considered to be relatively defensive. Now, all that changed since 2012. And what, what is clear on this chart, and you, you have to look at the orange colored uh, indications, com, com, compare them to the black ones. And what you will find here is that in 2012, the REITs in the Australian share market clearly outperformed the broader market. Now, the next year, that was not the case, but it was still a positive performance. Now, the year after that, 
it was by far the best performing sector in the share market. The year after that, they outperformed again and outperformed again. And then they had a not positive performance and then they outperformed again. And in 2019, which is not on this chart, again, REITs are one of the best performing sectors in the share market. Now, that's, of course, I would think that everyone agrees with me, is a complete different uh, picture than what is traditionally the case. And it's also something that doesn't get much attention in, in, the, in the media and in the press. And of course, one of the reasons here is the bond market. Now, what is so fascinating about this is what you don't see here. And that earlier I described how the share market is so much polarized between the winners and the losers. Now, inside the REITs, that's equally the case. What is so fascinating about this performance of the sector is that the bifurcation that you don't see here is absolutely enormous. So the, about half of the REITs has absolutely done nothing over that period, hasn't moved. It's probably, it's probably even cheaper than it was years ago. So that gives an indication how strongly the other half has performed to still get with these numbers that, it, that, that the sector as a whole still outperforms the broader market. And in simple terms, think um, Charter Hall and Goodman Group. If you look at those price charts, that gives you an idea how strong the, the outperformers in this sector have performed over the, over the past few years. Now, I've put together another because this is the bond market in, in influencing the share market. And the bond market creates its own winners and losers. And it's not necessarily one-on-one -on -one with the one we saw earlier, although there are obviously there's overlap. So what, what we now find in the share market is that you have certain sectors that are twice amongst the, amongst the winners and twice amongst the losers. And then you have a middle field that, that are either, either helped or hindered by innovation and economic growth or helped or hindered by, by, by bond yields. So it becomes a little bit more complicated, but what is important here is that, is that some, some companies in, are enjoying a double benefit and some sectors are enjoying a double uh, disadvantage. And you will find, for example, on the, on the right-hand side amongst the losers, there's diversified financials. And if you wanna know why, for example, a challenger financial hasn't performed over the past few years. This is partially the explanation and also shows I me mean, there's other diversified financials that haven't really performed either. Now, a correlation that is seldom mentioned, and I'm definitely not going to talk about it a lot, but I do think it's worth pointing out because every time I mention it, uh, it's almost like uh, the gold bugs fall off their chair because they've never heard about this. But in 2019 in particular, the outlook of the gold price in US dollars is defined by what the bond market does. And you can clearly see here that the correlation is absolutely very, very high. And the bond market now means that on days, sometimes longer than uh, one day, in, it could, be, could last a week or even a whole month, you will find that the gold price is moving in the same direction as is, for example, the share price in CSL, Wisetech Global and REA Group. And at face value, you think like, but that's that, there's no correlation there because the correlation is the bond market. And I can see scenarios where a strong 
correction in the bond market would trigger a, a very strong correction in equity markets. And those who are seeking safe haven status in gold will be very disappointed under such a scenario because gold will sell off as well. Equally important, um, and I can't really emphasize this one enough. The bond market is very simplistic and very straightforward in how it treats risk. If you are a lender of, and you carry a higher risk, then you will have to pay a higher yield. That's as simple. So higher quality, lower risk bonds have a lower yield. The higher risk bonds have a higher yield. Usually investors are quick in understanding this. What they usually don't understand is that that same principle also applies in the share market. Coming back, for example, to, uh, to the banks, which I just mentioned, uh, I haven't checked the latest numbers, but recently the Westpac share price uh, was implying a dividend yield of around 6.3, 6.4% before franking. What that means, I, I think everyone should realize this, that Westpac is believed to be cutting its dividend at the upcoming reporting season. So underlying what the market is saying is, is telling us is that maybe the true yield of Westpac is around 5.7 instead of 6.3, 6.4. We'll obviously have to find out whether that's the case, but that's how the share market works basically along the same lines as the bond market. Higher risk, higher yield, lower risk, lower yield. Now I've put together, now I'm going to ask everyone uh, everyone's attention a little bit more than what we what, what what we have given so far. I've put together a little bit of a model here to try to explain to everyone what effect effectively is happening in the share market and has been happening over the past few years. Now this is not a perfect model, but it's a principle that will explain to you why a number of value investors are constantly talking about the bubble and they can't explain it and they can't understand it and surely it has to come crashing down anytime soon and that's not necessarily the case because the answer is again is the bond market now what i want you to focus on is on the on the left hand side there's there's a profit table and we have we've taken a company that makes ten ten dollars profit just as a imaginary easy to use uh, uh starting point and then we we have a valuation multiple with that. And I'm sort of suggesting that if under normal circumstances, we value this company between 20 and $30, which is in this case, two to three times uh, next year's profits. So the share price would fluctuate between 20 and $30. However, what happens is, what also happens in the background is that as bond yields keep on dropping, Basically, the, the, the category at which we use the multiple basically shifts up in the price table. So without anything happening to the company's profits or its, or its management or its prospects, but simply because the bond yields keep on dropping, we're moving instead of between 20 and $30, we're moving to 30 and 40. And a little bit further, we are talking 40 and 50. And as this continues going up, it's easy to see how share prices can double or even triple. And without those companies making more profits, it's all about the bond market. 
And this is, if you don't understand this principle, it's very easy to see how people go, the share market is in a, is in a bubble, or these stocks are in a bubble, or this sector is in a bubble. But the answer is effectively the bond market. And this is what the bond market does to certain stocks in the share market, because there's another category of stocks, and they have absolutely done nothing, have had no benefits from the bond market whatsoever. And these are the guys at the bottom that I've nominated as value. I should actually put losers, but I don't wanna, I don't wanna insult them too much. And on the left-hand side, you'll see those guys make no profits. Now, it doesn't matter how good or how bad you are in, in mathematics, but I think everyone understands that if the, one, of the, one of the elements in the calculation is zero, and it's a multiplier, then the outcome is always zero. So it doesn't matter how much we multiply the value here because of bond yields dropping. It's always, the, the outcome is always a zero. So what, what has happened in the share market is that those companies who are benefiting from the, from the technolo technological innovations, from the, from the steadiness that they can offer investors, from, from, from the profits they make, and from the growth avenues they have, their share prices have just risen and risen and risen on the back of lower bond yields. And those companies that are in trouble, that are structurally challenged, that make no profits and are on the threat of being annihilated by the interrupters and the disruptors, they, their share prices have absolutely got no benefit whatsoever. And, and the, how, the way I see the share market, it's almost like an elastic band. It's constantly being stretched to the maximum. And you can see how, how much that stretches. Because to, in, in very simplistic terms, a company that is making $10 profits here and has benefited from, from, from the lower bond yields, its share price could have risen to $80 or $90 in this, in this nice, nicely uh, put together uh, table. And another company, their share price might have gone up from $1 to $2. And so the distance between both stocks is just stretched to the maximum here. What you will find once you understand this principle, by the way, just as a side remark, the only reason why this doesn't work ultimately is that if we move into a recession because then the profits of the companies will be will be will be put in, into question the other element that uh, investors should keep bear in mind here as well is that bond yields do not just simply move into one direction if bond yields then move into the other direction you can have very quick snapback uh, share price responses in the share market and that's exactly what we've seen over the past few years on, on multiple occasions. Here is a value versus growth chart of the past um, more than two decades, two and a half decades. But what's, what I think there's a few things that I want, I want to put investors' attention to here. You see in the late 90s that we had this strong run-up of so-called growth companies. Now, they weren't necessarily profitable, but in, in, the, in the labeling as used by, by professional investors, they are part of the growth camp. We subsequently had in the big gray zone a recession. And what the recession essentially did is to change the pendulum from growth to value. So in, after the bear market, we had a, we had a beautiful time for the, for the value camp. And, and I think investors will still remember 
It's all about mining stocks, energy stocks, banks, retailers. They were having a jolly good time leading into 2007. Now that changed again in 2007 and valuations were probably very high for those stocks. And I do remember they were high. I mean, BHP was $50 and Woodside hit 73 around that time. You can make the comparison today. National Australia Bank was $40, for example, never been there since. Now then we get the recession we all remember, the big GFC one. Now again, what that recession did is change the momentum from value to growth. And after that, value has had a little bit of a struggle, definitely in the United States. In Australia, it took a little bit longer. It started here around 2013 on my uh, analysis. Since then, we have this era where, where the pendulum was all in favor of, of, uh, of growth. Two very strong snapbacks have we had in history so far in that over that time. The first one, was in uh, the second half of 2016, where the bond market triggered a very sharp uh, pullback in growth stocks and in favor of uh, high value stocks. And I'm, I'm certain many investors will have remembered that one. That also includes the election of, of, uh, of Trump. And we had a very strong rally in, in, in banks, in resources stocks and the likes of uh, CSL, for example, um, REA Group, uh, Wystack Global, 20% um, went off in a flash. Now, it only lasted five months, and then we just moved back to, uh, to favor growth again. Now, the second time that we have an enormous snapback is late 2018, last year. And that's a different snapback than we experienced in 2016. Because in 2018, Everyone was positioned for a revival of, of, of value again. But what happened is after the initial sell-off sell of stocks like CSL, Wystack Global and, and, and REA Group, they started dragging the whole market down. And there was no safe haven status to be had from, from, uh, from owning the value stocks. Now, why that difference? The difference is that the first time around, we sold off on the, well, in growth stocks we did, on the reflation trade. So investors were counting on the return of inflation and the return of strong economic growth. Now that proved futile, that proved not, not correct. And also higher bond yields, that proved incorrect as well. The second time around, however, we are anticipating recession. And in a recession, as investors will come to the conclusion, if we have one, you can't possibly seek uh, safe haven status in, in, uh, in weak, vulnerable uh, cyclicals because they will issue profit warnings. And that's exactly what we are experiencing in August, pre-August, and now post-August as well. Think, for example, the fact that um, ANZ recently came out with yet another negative announcement, and we just had a profit warning from uh, Flight Center as well. Now, this period we're in right now, We've already seen a little bit of a correction in the growth stocks again, but I happen to believe that it will be very difficult, again, for value to maintain its, its short-term momentum for exactly the reasons I've just pointed out. So it becomes a little bit of a case of be careful what you wish for. And, and I find it almost fascinating to see the momentum in the share market, constantly trying to switch, but then have to switch back
Um, and that's obviously um, a professional managers trying to find another edge, which then proves futile. So far, it has. All the stuff I've just told you uh, comes together in this, this chart from Stockbroker Morgans. Uh, you can see at the bottom, the line in red, those are your cheap stocks. And if you bought them in 2013, um, without dividends, you would still be sitting on, on capital losses today. Um, that's, of, of course, as a group. I mean, there are sometimes, there's an occasional company like, for example, Flexi Group or so, they manage to come out of that group and, 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 and rise, rise to, to, a, to a better circumstance. But on, in general terms, um, buying cheap stocks hasn't really done the trick uh, since 2013 in Australia. In contrast, if you look at the very top of, the, of, of this uh, graphic, uh, the winners, they just kept on winning. And every once in a while, as you can clearly see there as well, there is that relatively sharp pullback. But then afterwards, then they just continue their path. I mentioned this before a little bit. We In 2018, the focus of the market did change. It, 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 it changed. Um, and we now are focused on the potential of a recession, uh, if not global, then definitely in the US. And that, that has changed the market's uh, mindset a little bit. And these four, four graphs here show investors clearly what is different now since mid-2018 and before 2018. And the left, at the top left, you'll see that the, that the, the, well, the momentum has switched towards large cap stocks and away from small cap stocks. Again, there are individual exceptions, but as a, as a group, and this is globally, by the way, as a group, this is what happened. You can clearly see that it has moved to, to, towards large cap stocks. Underneath that, you can clearly see how cyclicals are out. Uh, people have people have been selling uh, mining services providers, uh, mining stocks, energy companies. Energy sector was one of the worst performing in 2019. And it has clearly gone to what front managers uh, define as defensives. In Australia, you will find that the West Farmers, the Woolworths, the Coles have significantly outperformed uh, many of the cyclicals, in particular the agricultural ones. On the right-hand side, we have uh, the swing towards uh, growth has continued. Uh, value is having a really bad time. And I find the most interesting one, the most fascinating one, is the one on, uh, on the right at the bottom. Uh, that's, the, that's the difference between quality and junk. On my predictions, we are, we are, we are going through a period, extended period, where quality is, is, is proving its quality, its value. And I think a lot, many, many investors are underestimating this. But what I find fascinating about this chart is that you can clearly see how from mid-2018 onwards, the market was all of a sudden buying junk stocks, which is basically low-quality stocks. And that, of course, proved to be the last leg of that strong uh, uptrend that finished in September 2018. And after that, we all went a little bit to, to hell in the, in the basket. But... Um, since then, quality has continued to, to outperform uh, lower quality stocks, and that's something to, to bear in mind as well. Just a quick flashback to the professionals. Um, I can imagine 
that for a lot of investors, all this is uh, very much hocus pocus and uh, oh my goodness, so much happening. Um, imagine if you're a professional fund manager and you have to, and you have to earn uh, your margins and your fees, and there's so much happening in this share market that they simply can't do it. This is uh, an overview I grabbed from a, a recent overview for the sector uh, by Morgan Stanley. And you can see that most fund managers, will, you can see it here it's 95%, it's 92%, it's 96% are underperforming their benchmark. And that is, um, that is quite, quite negative because we are going through a period where we have increasingly passive, passive investments, and passive instruments and passive vehicles, and they cost less. And if then the, the active managers can't do what they're supposed to do, um, this will weigh on the sector, and this is only one element that will weigh on the sector. But this also, again, partially explains why uh, listed fund managers, with the occasional exception like a Magellan, they're not having a good time in this in this current context. I have taken the, the liberty of putting a few names to the whole concept. Uh, on the left-hand side are the winners, and on the right-hand side, I've put some losers together. It's very simple. If your portfolio consists of enough stocks on the left-hand side, and we have the, the Transurbans, the Afterpay Touch, Magellan, Aristocrat, WiseTech, Technology One, CSL, Treasure Wines, Woolworths, Macquarie, etc. I mean, you would wake up every morning and you have a big smile on your face and you have no idea what everyone is talking about from how difficult the share market actually is. However, if your portfolio consists of enough stocks on the, on the right-hand side, and you have to think about Sims Metal Management, Speedcast International, Amazum, Platinum Asset Management, Michael Hill, Unibail, Rodemco Westfield, Challenger, ANZ Bank, Maya, Viva Energy, Whitehaven Coal, and the likes. You don't even you don't you can't even imagine what the bull market looks like because it's definitely not present in in your portfolio. And this is how sharply the current share market is is divided. And in a lot of cases, I would, I would not bet myself that the gap between those two groups is, is, going, to, is going to close down anytime soon. It narrows at times, but I'm not so sure whether it's going to close down anytime soon. What we have here is a very difficult, uh, complex looking uh, modeling by Morgan Stanley, but I only put it in because I want to show, you, I want to show uh, investors uh, two things here. The yellow line at the very back, at the right, shows you how financial markets are positioned today. And it's, it's above one third odds for a recession in the next 18 months or so. So that means that financial participants in the bond markets, in equity markets and elsewhere, are seriously considering that we might have a recession at some point and they're positioned for that. However, the green line is the economic picture. And you can see that there's a big gap in between. So, so far, economically, there's not necessarily an indication that we will have a recession, but the financial participants are positioned for it to a certain extent. So the outcome here has to be that either the financial participants are incorrect and they will have to unwind their positions, which means, amongst other things, we will see higher bond yields, and that might actually uh, create 
a correction in the share market, or the economic picture has to catch up. And that obviously won't be, won't be good news because recessions is the last thing we want. Nevertheless, it's quite, um, it's quite remarkable that we are at one of those pivotal times and we don't really know what the outcome is. The best advice I can give to investors is you keep an open mind and you don't put all your money in on one possible outcome. Just to show everyone how difficult it is to predict the future, I have put together here a um, scenario that happened in 1998. And we had an inversion of the bond yields in 1998. And of course, everyone then starts talking, oh, we have a recession. At that time, it lasted three years before we actually ultimately had that recession in the US. And that was helped, of course, by 9-11 happening. In the meantime, as we all know, we had an enormously strong rally in the share market in between 1998 and that recession ultimately happening. Now, I'm by no means suggesting that that might be the outcome we are awaiting this time around. I actually don't think it is, but it just goes to show that the future is always a little bit unpredictable and we never really know what the outcome might be. And it's always dangerous to take guidance from one particular um, indicator only. What is important now, that now to, in, with regards to the future, however, is that I believe that it's no longer what's the outlook for the share market. It is what's the outlook for which particular segment of the share market. And if we, for example, see a continuation of what we've seen so far, then I believe the outperformance of growth stocks over value stocks will continue. In other words, the winners will keep on winning and the losers will still be losers. One, there's two ways that that can change. One is we have a, we have a recession, but again, that won't help the value stocks much because they will be the ones issuing profit warnings and going bankrupt. What will help the value element of the, of the market, the losers, is that we will see a strong resumption of growth. And personally, I don't see that happening anytime soon either, but I could be wrong. You never know. The difficulty with today's share market is because we, we can have these outcomes which are quite binary. And I can't tell you today which one is guaranteed going to be the outcome. But if I had to bet, I'm betting on the middle uh, outcome, which basically means growth stocks are most likely going to continue being among the winners. A truth that came, came through over the past few years is exactly this quote, you pay up for quality and it's going to help you. However, because the bond market is now of such a big influence that this is not always going to be the case in the share market. And I think investors should at the very least take this into account. Just a very last one before we go to Q&A. I, I do manage a portfolio and I'm very much focused on quality and growth in that portfolio. And we do have a secret report at FN Arena. There's the address, you can download it and it's all yours. And with those words, actually, I'm gonna end today. And let's say we come back in five years time and see how I've done today. But I'm open for questions right now. 
Thank you, Rudy, very much for that excellent presentation. Uh, we do have a number of questions and um, I'll just go into them right now.